Uh, Larry is out of town this morning. He is uh, visiting a pastor friend of his, and uh, they're going to spend the afternoon together, have lunch, that kind of stuff, which is kind of cool. It's, it's really hard to pry him off of the pulpit, you know, uh, uh, but it's a good little break for him. And so, you know, uh, maybe just pray for him in this crazy weather. Hopefully he's driving safe. But speaking of Larry, um, Bill talked about the men's breakfast that he was a guest speaker at yesterday. And so I went um, to check it out, make sure he was behaving himself. Um, and uh, he had a great message for the men there. And so the, the big idea of that message was basically regardless of your aging throughout life, that your service to God never stops. Um, and he gave a lot of examples of folks who were, you know, in their, in their later years who did a lot of wonderful things, Billy Graham and a lot of others. Um, and so the, the basic idea was using a, a, an illustration of a circle. He said, you know, we, we, we live in the world and then the line coming off it is eternity, but we live for eternity, right? And so the idea is that everything we do here is attributed to what we do there. So uh, with that in mind, today we're going to talk a little bit about being a humble servant, being a humble servant. And so I want to read an article called Hidden Humble Servants that was written by a man called Kevin Miller in 2001, and I want to share that with you. It says this, in the seven-story mountain, Thomas Merton comments that good people are usually hidden, and I'm convinced he's right. What convinced me was a woman named Olive. Olive grew up in a poor, rural West Virginia town in a shotgun house that rattled every time the train went by. She married young and her husband died suddenly, leaving her a house full of kids to feed. As Olive neared retirement age, she had no money to speak of, so she took a job in a nursing home. She would walk to work, stiff from her arthritis, and then descend to the nursing home basement to the sweltering laundry room and wash and dry linen soiled by the old and the incontinent. Because she loved kids, Olive would also babysit. She'd walk into our house like Mary Poppins, laden with bags of crafts and videos. Crying babies were music to her. She'd take a caterwauling infant, place him on her ample bosom, and magically soothe it to sleep. I would drive Olive home and watch her climb with difficulty to her second floor apartment. Then she'd give me a hug and a big smile and say goodnight. Many times as I walked down to my car, I would shake my head. I've seen Olive worried about medical bills, but I've never heard her complain. I've never seen her be anything but sunny and grateful for her lot. Then the Holy Spirit would convict me. I have a great working atmosphere and wonderful health coverage, and yet I'm routinely ungrateful. I was in the presence of someone good and her very life flushed out what was not good in me. Yes, God hides the good. He seems to delight in taking his treasures and placing them not in a display case in the living room, but <clears throat> in a dark corner of, or a drawer. Olive in this story is an example of a humble servant. And a servant is defined as a person who performs duties for others. And humility is essentially looking at others' interests over your own. According to the Bible, we as Christians 
are servants and have been called to be humble servants, even in the midst of suffering. Today we'll be looking at Christian servitude, what it is, what it does, why we should do it, and the perfect example. And as we look at some ways we can do this, I want us to reflect on Jesus and how we can become better Christian servants. Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25 today. 18 through 25. But first, let me just give you some general information. 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter around AD 60-64. And it was written to Gentile and Jewish believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Western Asia Minor, and Bithynia, which is essentially present-day Turkey. One commentator explained that Peter was offering hope and meaning in the midst of suffering, something many people needed back then and as they endured unjust suffering and something that we all need today. Because suffering, while it's not pleasant, is very common. Anger, anxiety, panic attacks, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorders, depression, eating problems, hearing voices, hoarding, loneliness, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, human trafficking. The list goes on and on and on. And while each person has their own encounters with suffering, the reality is, is that our response to suffering demonstrates our level of faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice. This being salvation, in your salvation you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, or the, the quality of or being true or authentic, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reality is sometimes it's just not all about us. And with that in mind, notice what Peter says to these believers in chapter 2, verse 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Understanding what Peter means when he uses the term servant and master is very important. Because it should not be confused with what a modern-day American might think of in terms of slave and master as it relates to how some people were owned, slaves, by other people, masters. 
which was the case in the United States prior to 1865, which is when the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. Slavery, as we consider it today, was very cruel, especially to the slaves that came from Africa. One source stated that slaves were forbidden to learn to read and write, kept ignorant so that they would not be aware of their plight. It would be a contradiction for them to find out they were living enslaved in the land of the free. Slaves were told that it was in their best interest to remain slaves. And this was not necessarily the case in the first century. Some have suggested that many people back then would sell themselves into temporary slavery, working as house servants or domestic slaves in order to kind of get ahead, much like we do today with our jobs. However, unlike today, they didn't have employee rights laws and other guidelines on how to treat their servants. And some of those masters were not very kind. And so Peter is addressing the servants in this statement. These are the ones who are serving others, not being served themselves. And these were the people who in many cases were being treated very poorly while they served. Now I'm not personally a super rich individual. And so I don't have my own servants. However, I do like to go out to eat. And I think it's nice that we have waiters and waitresses. I enjoy being served when I go out to eat. But I also enjoy being very nice to my servers and tipping them because I appreciate their hard work and the service that they're giving in general. And so in that case, I feel like I'm a pretty good master of my servants when I go out to eat. However, however, I have witnessed a lot of people treat their servers horribly, expecting them to be perfect all the time or blaming them for every little thing. And so just a side note, just a piece of advice to those who are not kind to your servers when you go out to eat. You are in jeopardy of them getting revenge through your food. Uh, So I strongly recommend erring on the side of being kind. Uh, But in this example, the waitress or the waiter is the servant. And the customer, the one being served, is the master. And the restaurant is kind of like the Apostle Peter. Right? They tell the servers to be kind to all the customers, regardless of their behavior. You guys are probably familiar with the phrase, the customer is always right. Peter is telling these Christian servants to be submissive to their masters with all fear, both the good and the gentle, as well as the harsh. And just to clarify, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a servant. We are Christian waiters and waitresses. 1 Corinthians 4.1 Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. According to Peter, servants, that is all Christians, should be submissive to their masters. Submission is another one of those terms that need to be better understood. Because in today's culture, submission is not really viewed as a good thing. 
A submission means the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or the will or authority of another person. In a lot of cases, submission is attributed to giving up or tapping out. In competitive fighting, like the ultimate fighting championship, submission means that you signal to the opponent that you quit and they win. This is done by tapping them on the arm, hence the name tapping out. This is yielding to a superior force, or in this example, someone tougher than you. However, Peter is talking about submitting to the will or authority of another person. At our jobs, we submit to the authority of our bosses. At church, we submit to the authority of pastors and elders. In public, we, we submit to law enforcement. In a marriage, a wife and a husband submit one to another. And servants submit to their masters. Being in submission to authority does not mean that you always agree with the person with which you submit, but rather that you do not resist their will. I read about Leo the lion, who one beautiful morning wakes up in his den, gives a big morning roar, stretches, and starts off for the watering hole. On his way, he comes across a monkey sitting on a rock. Leo grabs the monkey, gives him a slap, and asks, who's the king of the jungle? And the monkey says, you are, Leo, everybody knows that. Leo drops the monkey and heads towards the water again. And further down the trail, he sees a gazelle grazing. Leo walks up to the gazelle and pops him right in the mouth and asks, who's the king of the jungle? And the gazelle quickly replies, you are, Leo. Everybody knows that. Leo leaves on his way to his morning drink. As he gets closer to the watering hole, there's a huge elephant blocking the way, having a drink of his own. Leo jumps up and claws the elephant's backside. The elephant turns around angrily, and Leo asks, who's the king of the jungle? And the elephant wraps his trunk around Leo, picks him up, smashes him in the ground, bounces him off some trees, and throws him across the watering hole. <laughs> Leo lands on the other side, dazed, bruised, and beaten. And Leo looks across the, at the elephant and yells, hey, just because you don't know the answer, no need to get mean. Peter is telling servants to be submissive to their masters, whether those masters are good and gentle or not. Not grab them and throw them across the watering hole just because you don't agree with them or, or you think that you have a better way. A Christian's response to this type of suffering is to be submissive with all fear. Fear in the Bible can mean a lot of things, such as being frightened, it can represent uh, reverence, like when in the presence of someone amazing. But as it relates to, the, to a servant fearing their master, it means to have respect for them as the authority, to have respect for authority. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. The Israelites in Joshua 24, 14 were no longer under the authority of Egyptian rule. As they were on the other side of the river, they were free and under the authority of God. And they needed to recognize who the boss was. John MacArthur said it was, it was time for worship and thanksgiving for all God had done. 
leading up to and including the conquest of Canaan. When a servant is submissive with all fear, they are taking into account all that has been done for them and they're demonstrating respect regardless of whether the action taken against them is good or bad at that moment. And so if you're the waiter or the waitress at a restaurant and someone is not being nice to you, your response to them is supposed to be based on the customer is always right. And you demonstrate respect even to people that may not deserve it at that moment because the reality is without the customer, you might not even have a job. But notice verse 19 and 20. For this, servants being submissive to their masters with all fear, for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. According to verse 19, it is commendable if one endures grief or suffering wrongfully because of conscience towards God. For it is commendable. Translates to an expression that describes whether or not one pleases someone. In this case, it concerns pleasing God. Pleasing God. Let's just think about that for a minute. Does that mean that God just wants me to work for a jerk and never be happy? I mean, does that mean that God wants me to, to go through tough times in my life? What does it mean to suffer wrongfully because of the conscience towards God? And why is God in favor of that? This is sort of like the age-old question, why does God let bad things happen to good people, right? Well, despite what most people think, first and foremost, there are not really any good people. All people, according to the Bible, have been infected with sin and have rebelled against the one who is good. Luke 18, 19. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. So we're not actually good, and neither is anyone else. So technically, God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. Okay? So we're not perfect. But suffering wrongfully still doesn't seem like a very nice thing, does it? I mean, if I go to work and I do a good job. I don't want my boss to treat me badly. I want him to pat me on the back and encourage me. But that's just not always how it works, is it? Because people are not perfect. And if we suffer wrongfully, meaning we are treated poorly, and there was absolutely no reason for it, and we accept this poor treatment without responding in anger or rebellion, we find favor with God. Some people treat us badly. And the fact is, they do not deserve to be treated with respect. But we should give it to them anyway. And according to the Bible, 
That makes God happy. I mean, what a gift. Giving someone unworthy some grace. But wait, if we give somebody something that they don't deserve and it pleases God, then guess what? That's the exact same thing he did for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's a gift from God to get something that you don't deserve. One commentator wrote, Peter knew that loyal Christians suffered from the abuse of cruel Roman practices. He told them to expect suffering. Suffering might be endured so that others could see the Lord's power to help Christians endure. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And then notice verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, I love this passage because it really drives home the point. If you are guilty and you receive punishment, there is no credit for you, regardless of how well you take it. But if you are innocent and you receive unjust punishment and you take that patiently, there is credit. It's not always easy to make these connections. It is easy sometimes to make the connections with the big issues, right? For example, if, if a person robs a bank and they get arrested, they will receive punishment at some point, which will likely, likely result in them being put in prison, if they accept that punishment patiently, nobody really cares, right? Most people will just say, good, you deserve to go to prison for what you did. If a child talks back to one of their parents and gets sent to their room, they don't get extra credit for actually going to their room, right? They are suffering justly. However, if a parent is having a bad day and snaps at one of their children who is asking them for help, maybe on their homework, this is a child who is suffering wrongfully. And according to this passage, if they were to endure that suffering patiently, they would receive credit. Some people may not agree, and that's okay. But think about this example. Have you ever been rude to your husband or wife when they did not deserve it? If that happens, and the person receiving the wrongful treatment snaps back, does that usually end well? No. However, if they are patient and they endure maybe a, a mood swing or something like that, it's more likely that the person will regret their behavior and apologize, even make cookies if all goes well. <laughs> I know what some people are thinking, right? This is, this is a tough pill to swallow, right? We're supposed to just let people walk all over us, right? Even if we've done nothing to deserve it. Let me first remind you that we're talking about those who are in authority over us, okay? And authority, according to this passage, the answer is yes. Yes. We are supposed to offer them 
grace. We are supposed to offer them forgiveness in order to please God. Let me share a quick story with you called The Grace to Forgive by Spencer Perkins, playing the grace card from the files of leadership. Daddy, come quick, shouted my four-year-old daughter. Someone stole the presents from under the Christmas tree. At first I thought that the children were playing with me, but I could see quickly that they were visibly upset. Apparently somebody had come into our house while we slept, picked out some choice presents, removed the blanket that covers my favorite chair, and used it to haul away about a half dozen or so gifts that were to be given to the children and to friends and family on Christmas morning. To say that the children were angry would be an understatement. After my 11-year-old son Jonathan realized that among the gifts stolen were his brand new Nike sneakers, he stormed out of the house in tears. I sat silently on my coverless chair, stunned and fuming. I had seen the children's Christmas special how the Grinch stole Christmas dozens of times since childhood, but I never believed such a tale could come true. How do you forgive a person like this? How do I teach my children to practice forgiveness? Because it's unnatural. We have to practice forgiveness like any other discipline. According to Dr. King, forgiveness is not just an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. Later that day, I put the question to my son. How should we as Christians respond to the person who tried to steal our Christmas? Yeah, yeah, I know, Dad, he said. Even though he doesn't deserve it, we're supposed to give him grace. Sure, I knew that the words that came out of his mouth were almost the complete opposite of what he was feeling in his heart. I knew because I felt the same way. But I also knew we had, to, we had to start somewhere. And if one step at a time, our discipleship as Christians could include giving each other grace, if our children could learn and practice forgiveness as well as they practice praise and worship, if we could literally create a counterculture of grace, then just maybe... As we all mature in our faith, our hearts could finally line up with our words. And the world would have to take notice. As we all mature in our faith, our hearts could finally line up with our words. What a statement. We say that we're Christians. We say that we accept what God wants. Well, then let's recap. We Christians are supposed to be submissive to authority. We are supposed to be servants that demonstrate a fear of God. Respect for authority. And we're supposed to give grace to others regardless of our suffering. Are we all doing this? Are we all doing this well? And if you're still hesitant about reevaluating your Christian, your Christian attitude as it relates to being a humble servant. Notice verse 21. For this you were called, 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Okay. So here we go. For this you were called. For what? To suffer this calling is God's grace, which has brought us salvation. Why? Because Jesus Christ suffered for us. Jesus Christ did this for us as a way to atone for something that we did wrong. And this was the only way for us to gain forgiveness from God. He has established the only desirable model for us as Christians to follow. One commentator said that just as in his life Christ suffered unjustly for doing God's will, so Christian slaves may have this calling. Servants are to follow their master's tracks. Matthew 10, 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me, said Christ the Lord. So what steps has he given us? Let's look at verse 22 through 25. Who when he, talking about Jesus, was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, whose stripes, by whose stripes you were healed. Okay. This is literally where the rubber meets the road. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. In Greek, the, the word revile is translated to, to mean insult or abuse, including verbal abuse. So when Jesus Christ was hit, he did not hit back. When Jesus was spit on, he did not spit back. When Jesus was yelled at and called names, he did not yell back or use profanity. He did not revile those that reviled him. And so the first step that Jesus teaches us here is that we are not to repay evil for evil. A principle that Peter points out in 1 Peter 3, 9. Not returning evil for evil. Not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. God does not want us to respond to evil with evil because we are treated poorly. We're not in a position when we are suffering to judge righteously. Notice, he, meaning Jesus, did not threatened, but committed himself to him, God, who judges righteously. Just to keep this simple, Jesus committed himself to God, who judges righteously. When we say this, we're talking about Jesus submitting to the authority of God to be the judge. To be fair, not everybody agrees with that interpretation. Some people say he committed himself to the cause. Some people say he committed himself to his revilers. 
But it appears to me that he's talking about God being the judge, according to my study, anyways. Jesus has demonstrated his loyalty to God through submission while suffering. He did not return evil for evil, but instead he trusted God. He did not return evil for evil, but instead trusted God. He trusted God even though he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus took all the sins that we have ever committed, all the sins that we will ever commit in the future upon himself, and he responded to that suffering with love. How does that compare to how we react to suffering? Why did he do this? So that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. As Christians, we have been given a new life, a righteous life. This righteous life is something God wants us to walk in. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. Regardless of what we're going through, regardless of how much suffering we endure, if we focus on God, when we serve others in response to our calling, then we are being humble servants of the Lord. And if for some reason we have failed in this area, it's not too late to stop. It's not too late to think about our Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect example of what a Christian is supposed to look like. Someone who puts others before themselves. Someone who does more for others than for themselves. Even to those who may not deserve it. Because at the end of the day, you might be the one whose faithful, humble service to God provokes another to choose Jesus. And then lastly, verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, from a spiritual sense, we're all messed up. We have gone astray and turned our backs on God. We were rebellious and sinful until Jesus came into our life. John MacArthur said, Christ is not only the Christian standard and substitute, but he is also the Christian shepherd. In the Old Testament, the the title of shepherd for the Lord was often messianic. And beyond that, shepherd and overseer were the most appropriate descriptions of Christ for Peter to use in order to comfort Christians who were being persecuted and slandered. These two terms are also used for human spiritual leaders. Shepherd is the word for pastor, and overseer is the word for bishop, both referring to the same, those that lead churches. Shepherds are those who tend to the sheep. They herd them or bring them together, and they they feed them, and they protect them. Jesus was the perfect example of a person who did this. This is one of the roles that a pastor has. One of the challenges as a pastor is to explain to a person that they have gone astray, that they need to repent, 
Because in today's society, everybody thinks that they're right. And they dismiss positions of authority. And they put themselves in those positions. I read one quote that said, God has promised you forgiveness for your repentance, but he has not promised you tomorrow for your procrastination. If you are in sin, or if you have gone astray from Jesus, then you need to repent and ask for forgiveness. If you have not been a humble servant to those in authority, you need to do a gut check, and you need to remember what Jesus did for you and why. It's not the easiest thing to do. And so to help out, I have a couple of, a couple of things to consider. First, if we want to please God and be good, humble Christians, good, humble Christian servants, then, then we need to change our minds about some things. We need to submit to those that have authority in every aspect of our lives. We need to submit to those that have authority in every aspect of our lives. I'm not saying that you should be abused. I'm saying that we all need to evaluate what is actually happening, and we need to be honest in our assessment of that situation, whether that's at home, whether that's at work, or in the public, even as that relates to church. Hebrews 13, 17, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Second, after figuring out who's who in life, in terms of authority, we need to focus on improving our quality of service. We need to improve our quality of service. We as Christians are representing God in a broken world, and we need to be kind to waiters and waitresses. Not just the ones that do a good job uh, because they think they're going to get a tip or whatever. I'm, I'm talking about being kind to everybody. We need to do a good job because the reality is we've already been paid. Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross has guaranteed our entry into eternity. And if that's not really enough to motivate us, then I'm not sure what would. But I do want to encourage all of us to not walk around being mean or retaliating and spitting in people's food just because people aren't perfect. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Be a good server who acts as though the customer is always right. Third, we need to be careful that we do not allow our culture to manipulate our Christian worldview. We have to be careful that we do not allow our culture to manipulate our Christian worldview. This culture is becoming more and more self-serving and through the ever-reaching arms of propaganda mixed with some political ideology, individualism is becoming the focus. 
One author wrote, individualism fuels a me-first attitude that makes it difficult for people to recognize the plight of others who are less fortunate or to embrace self-sacrifice for the collective good. The Bible says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's own life for his friends. Selfishness has to be overcome and cultural lies refuted. Selfishness has to be overcome and cultural lies refuted. Change our minds and attitudes toward authority. Improve our quality of service and do not succumb to a culture that denies God. For if we do these things, it will be commendable to God. I read this, I read this article by an anonymous writer called Our Servanthood Can Resemble a Garden Hose or a Sprinkler, which says this. One evening while watering the garden, the sheer sacrifice of true service overwhelmed me. There amongst the tomatoes and parsley, I realized that most of my previous attempts at service were very much like the garden hose in my hand. I was in control, dictating how, when, and to whom I would serve. With my nifty sprayer, I could even stop the water altogether when I felt like it. The flow of Christ's love that I gave to others depended on my mood, the health of my career, and even how much sleep I got the night before. Mine was, and still often is, a self-righteous, self-gratifying service. In contrast, I noticed a soaker hose in the planter across from me. It watered the ground completely, indiscriminately. Dozens of holes let the water loose and had no shutoff switch. Life-giving water oozed out all over the place, like it or not. To serve like a soaker hose means to pour out Christ's love from every pore of our beings, not concerning ourselves with the timing, the effect it might have, or the productivity, or the worthiness of the recipients. If God has turned on the water in our lives, filling us with life-giving springs, why would we hold them back from anyone? For fear of running out? Doesn't he have an infinite supply of living water? Our God has given us everything we need to be humble servants to the best of our ability. We can be Christian soaker hoses. We can pour out the love of Jesus in everything that we do if we just focus on him above all else. Let's pray. Holy Father God in heaven, thank you so much for your word, Lord. You are a good and gracious God, and you have blessed us with so much. Your grace is abounding. Your mercy is incredible. I pray, Father, that as we all investigate our own lives and how we treat people in our lives, I pray, Lord, that you would convict all of us to improve our quality of service. Help us to focus on you in all we do, regardless of our suffering. Help us, Father, to share the love of your Son with all that we encounter. I pray, Lord, over anybody here today who may not know your Son, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be convicted and that they would consider choosing life over death. Thank you, Lord, for this message. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation. And I pray that we would all 
live in your peace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.